The following sermon was recorded in the Westminster Chapel on Sunday the 17th of February 1957 and is another in the series preached on the Gospel of St John by Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones. In this sermon the doctor is preaching on John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 with special emphasis on the word must. But I think I indicated quite clearly that we had by no means finished our consideration of this all-important and vital statement. Indeed, I really want to speak this evening on just one word, and it is the word must. Must. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, it is, it seems to me, of vital importance that we should consider these two verses and this one word in particular in their context and setting. We remember, in other words, and must remember, that these words were spoken to this man Nicodemus, this master, this ruler in Israel who came to our Lord, you remember, by night, seeking an interview with him. Because our Lord spoke to this man in particular here, and he had a very definite object in his mind as he spoke to him. And if we are truly to understand these two verses, we must bear that context and that setting in our minds. Let me put it to you hurriedly like this. Our Lord divided his talk to Nicodemus into two main sections. He first of all spoke to him what he called earthly things. And by that he means the doctrine of the absolute necessity of the new birth. A man must understand at the very beginning that when he comes to this Christian message, this Christian faith, he is beginning to look at something that is entirely different from anything he's ever known before. It's no use coming to the gospel with a philosophical mind. The Apostle Paul made that abundantly clear, I take it, in that section which we read at the beginning. Your man can be a great philosopher, he can be learned in it, he can understand it, but it's no use his bringing that to this. It will be a hindrance to him if he relies upon it. In the same way, to put it in a little more modern form, it's no use a man saying, well now, I'm a scientist, of course, and I always approach everything from the scientific attitude. That's all right. But you know, if you do that with respect to this, you're already doomed before you've gone any further. We're all different. One man's a scientist, another's a musician. And we all tend to come with these different capacities and capabilities. I'm now going to approach it in this way or that way. And we all will fail, because it doesn't matter what we are. We can never understand this. A man must be born again to understand this. So our Lord tells him that at the very beginning. It's in an entirely different realm. It's spiritual. So everything secular, everything human, at their very best and highest are absolutely useless. This great master in Israel, this expert on religion, has got to go back to the beginning and to be born again. Now that's what our Lord calls earthly things. But Nicodemus can't take all this. He doesn't understand and he keeps on saying, how can these things be? Very well, says our Lord, you still still don't seem to understand that you need an entirely new mind and outlook if you're going to understand me and what I'm doing. Now I want you to see that, he says, so listen for a moment to what I'm now going to say. And he begins to tell him of what he calls heavenly things. And do you remember what they were? He speaks about himself and his own person. No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's who I am, he says. I'm not just another teacher. 
I'm not just the latest philosopher who's appeared on the scene. I don't belong to your categories. We speak that we do know and testify that which we have seen is come from God. Nicodemus must be right about his person. And the moment you begin to consider the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the two natures in one person, where's your philosophy? Where's your science? Where's anything human? And then last Sunday night, you remember, we looked at this, this further statement that he makes here in these two verses. He tells Nicodemus, you've been interested by my miracles. But you know, he says, Nicodemus, I didn't come into the world to work miracles. I came in connection with salvation. I am come not as a miracle or a wonder worker, not only as a teacher. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost, salvation. And then he goes on to show Nicodemus the need of it. You remember we worked it out together in terms of this picture that our Lord himself takes. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, there they were. As the result of their sin, God sent fiery serpents amongst them, and they bit them, and they died of the poison, and they became alarmed. They saw their sin, and they confessed it. And they asked Moses, plead with God to deliver us and to forgive us. And Moses went to God and God told him what to do. He told him to take a serpent made of brass and put it on a pole and lift up the pole. And then he said, you tell those people who've been bitten by the serpents that if they're on the very verge of death, if they but look at this brazen serpent on the pole, at once they'll be healed. And everyone that looked was immediately healed with doing nothing else. Now, said our Lord, that's your condition. The whole world is sinful before God. And I have come into the world because of that and in order to save. And then he points out that his method of saving is, you see, by being crucified. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, crucified on a tree, raised up there in crucifixion. That's my method of saving. Well, as I pointed out, there is nothing to the natural mind that seems quite so strange and so monstrous as this. But that is what our Lord tells Nicodemus. And I'm reminding you that his object in doing it is to do this. Is to show Nicodemus the utter futility of attempting to understand. And the absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit in rebirth. If you try to understand these things, you're finished, you're hopeless. But if you realize that and submit and ask for this enlightenment, you will receive it. Now, there is nowhere, I think we can safely say, about this Christian gospel, this Christian message, where more people stumble in this matter of understanding than just with this question of the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon that cross on Calvary's hill. There is no point in the whole doctrine where it is so essential for us to become as little children and realize that our understanding will never be enough just as here. It is as if God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and your thoughts, and my ways, and your ways. My dear friend, am I making this clear before we proceed another step? We are interested here and are dealing with the thought of God, the almighty and eternal and absolute God. This isn't human. This isn't men. This is God. And he tells us, there through the prophet Isaiah, that his thoughts and our thoughts are the difference between the heavens and the earth. What unutterable folly it is, therefore, to say, oh, well, if I don't understand a thing, I don't accept it. I could display the folly of that to you along many, many lines. The most precious things in our human life 
elude understanding. Is our great scientist uh, consistent, I wonder? Does he approach the question of falling in love in a thoroughly scientific manner? Does he say there, but I'm a man of science, of course, and I approach everything in a scientific manner? Thank God that he is inconsistent. His nature is wiser than his head. You see, thus we display our folly. And if it's true in a matter like that, how infinitely more true is it when we are looking into the heart of the eternal God and his amazing love in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well now, as we approach it, therefore let us look at it like this. There is nothing I say about which men have stumbled so much as just uh, with regard to this very question. There are some, of course, who just dismiss it altogether. They're irritated and annoyed by it. As Paul puts it, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And to the Jews, stumbling block. It's a disgrace. It's a scandal. Say, fancy preaching that a man dying on a gibbet is the, the savior of the world. It's, it's to them something absolutely insulting. Beneath contempt. Beneath their dignity as men of understanding and of intellect. They just dismiss it. But there are others, you know, who do not dismiss it like that. They say they're very interested in it. And yet, as the Apostle Paul points out, they sometimes make it of none effect through their philosophy, through their wisdom. And it is very important that we should uh, expose these two particular errors there are some, you see, who talk a great deal about the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, but it's a philosophy. It's an idea. It isn't a fact. And therefore I say we can do nothing better than this evening look together at this word must. What is the truth about the death of the Son of God? What happened exactly when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary's hill and died. What does he mean by this being lifted up? Why this? Well, as I say, the answer to that is to be found, I think, in just this one word. This word, must. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does he mean by that? Well, let me give you some answers to the question. The first answer is this. The word must tells us that our Lord's death upon the cross was not just an accident. Now, to many people, it was just an accident. What I mean is this. They think that it was something that happened solely and entirely as the result of the blindness and the cruelty of the men who put him to death. You know, they say this world has often done things like that. The world has often rejected and crucified its own greatest benefactors. And supremely it did it in the case of the Son of God. He was too good for the world. He was too pure. He was too innocent. And the world in its folly said away with him, crucify him. And there it was. He had come to teach and to help people, but they said, let's kill him, let's get rid of him. And they broke into his life and they cut it short. And he died at the age of 33 because of the blindness and the cruelty of men. It's the action of men. There's nothing else there. The greatest tragedy that's ever happened in the whole history of the world. But you know, this one word must puts any such talk entirely out of court at once. It's just wrong. It's just rubbish. It isn't the truth. Let me explain to you what I mean. The scriptures themselves make this perfectly plain and clear, that men, the men who crucified Jesus Christ, were only the agents. They really, in a sense, were not responsible for it. They did it, but they didn't know what they were doing. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. If you read the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in which you'll find an account of a sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, you will find that Peter said this. 
He tells those men that though they actually, in a literal physical sense, crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, that the real truth was this. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Have ye laid cruel hands upon and have crucified? Now that's the Apostle Peter, who has just been baptized with the Holy Spirit and who speaks with authority. That's, he says, the explanation of what's been happening here. You did the deed, but that isn't the explanation. Him being delivered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. There is another word in the scripture that puts it like this. It talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There are people whose names are written in the book of life of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Is this something accidental that men have done? No, no. It is something that was determined before the world was ever made. It was something in the mind and the purpose of God before creation ever came into existence. Or listen to the Apostle Peter putting it in his first epistle. He puts it very clearly and in an unmistakable manner. In the first epistle, in the first chapter, verse 20, you read this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He's just been referring to his death. He says, you are redeemed not with gold and silver or with things like that, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Is that not enough? I could give you further statements to the same effect. Surely I have quoted enough to establish this point. It is the teaching of the scripture everywhere. That this thing which happened on Calvary's hill was predetermined and foreordained before a single man ever breathed in this world. Before there ever was a world. Oh no, this is not merely something done by men. It's not the greatest tragedy of history. It's a great something in the purpose and the mind of God. Let me prove it you still further. Begin reading your Old Testament and go through it. And this is what you'll find. You will find that this death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on Calvary is prophesied and predicted constantly. It was promised the way back in the Garden of Eden. You'll find it in Genesis 3.15. Some people see it in the offering, the blood sacrifice that Abel gave, differing from that uh, other sacrifice of fruit and of the produce of the land that was given by Cain. They may well be right. I can well believe it. But when you come forward to the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and you begin to read about the Passover sacrifice of the lamb that was slain and his blood put upon the lintels and the doorposts of the house and wherever the blood was seen, death passed by. What's it mean? What's the meaning of the paschal lamb? What's this passing over? What's this Passover? And then you go on and read in Leviticus about your burnt offerings and your sin offerings and sacrifices. What's it all about? Well, they tell us themselves and the New Testament gives us a still clearer exposition. These are but prefigurations of the death of Christ upon the cross. These are but adumbrations. These are suggestions. These are foretellings of the great Lamb of God that was going to come. These are pictures, these are types, indicating the great antitype. You see, there's really no meaning in much of the Old Testament if you don't see this. It is the God who had planned it and purposed it before time and before creation, beginning to reveal it to his own people. He's telling them through these things and in other ways, I am going to save, I'm going to deliver, I'm going to send a Messiah. They all speak about him and all these things point to him. That's looking forward to Calvary. And then Isaiah, of course, was given to see it very clearly 
in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy, Who hath believed our report? And he goes on to talk about the man of sorrows acquainted with sin. We did esteem him smitten, smitten of God. By his stripes are we healed. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's he talking about? What explanation of that is there in the Old Testament? There's none. It's pointing forward. As the New Testament writers are careful to indicate, he went as a lamb to the slaughter. Oh, I mustn't keep you. You see, you don't begin to understand your Old Testament at all unless you see that it's all pointing forward to this. It's not men. It's God's purpose. Then you remember you turn over to your New Testament and you look at that first preacher, John the Baptist. What's he say? This is what he says. Behold, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. That's how he refers to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. God has provided the Lamb at last. No longer men getting their lambs and their burnt offerings. God's Lamb. God has provided his own offering. And then when you come to the teaching of our Lord himself, well, you've got it everywhere. Here it is immediately before us. Here you see at the very beginning of his ministry, in a sense, he tells them, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I have come to die, to be lifted up upon the cross, in the 10th chapter of this Gospel of John, you'll find him saying, The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The hireling shepherd fleeth when he seeth the enemy coming. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No man taketh my life from me, he says. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down myself. Do you want more than that? Well, go on to the 12th chapter and you'll find him saying this. Here he is, just before the crucifixion. And this is his statement, this is his prayer. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I shall say? I know death is coming, it's very near. Shall I turn to God and say, Father, save me from this hour? Nay, but for this hour came I into the world. I'm not going to ask God, he says, to save me from this because I came into the world in order to come to this. His reason for coming into the world was to go to the cross on Calvary's hill. He came to die. And then you read in the 17th chapter of this gospel, here he is now on the very threshold. Father, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his glorification. The hour, follow this word in the Gospel according to St. John, the hour. He came into the world for this hour. And yet men say it's an accident, it's the greatest tragedy. My dear friend, he came into the world because of this. Well, let the author of the epistle to the Hebrews put it for us finally, as he puts it in the second chapter and the ninth verse. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he might taste death for every man. He was made a little lower than the angels. He became a man. The explanation of the incarnation is for the suffering of death. Oh, I trust I've established this point once and forever. Don't regard the death of Christ on the cross as an accident. Don't think of it only in terms of what men did. They were but the human instruments. This is something that was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. That's a part of this must. It's not an accident. Very well, let me go on to my second point, which is this. The death of our Lord upon the cross was not only not an accident. It is not something that God forgives. Now, I want to make this very clear. There are some people who think, 
that this is the position. That the value of the death of our Lord upon the cross is simply this. That God says to mankind, even though you've done that to mine only son, I still forgive you. You've heard that view, haven't you? That is their explanation of it. They say, you know, what's happening on Calvary is that God even forgives Calvary. And by telling us that he forgives even what was done on Calvary, he is telling us that his love to us is so great that it doesn't matter what we've done, he is ready to pardon us and to forgive us. That's the way they put it. They say God, of course, is love, and because God is love, he was always ready to forgive. And in his love, he'd already forgiven men. But the trouble was that men couldn't see that. Their hearts were so hard. But as they look at the Son of God dying and expiring there upon the cross, they say, you know, if God can forgive even that, why he can forgive anything? And he must have forgiven my sins. The sight of Christ dying upon the cross, they say, breaks our hearts and breaks us down. And so we are brought to believe in the forgiveness that God had already got for us and was offering us, though we couldn't see it. What of this? Well, I've only one thing to say about it. It doesn't explain the must in my text this evening. Even so must the Son of Men be lifted up. According to that view, God was already loved and God had already forgiven. But this accident takes place and God says, well, though you've done that, I still forgive. I even forgive you for doing that. But there's no must about that. That's God overcoming the accident. That's God's love being greater than the cruelty of men. There's no must. And yet what our Lord says is this even so. Must the Son of Man be lifted up? It's got to happen. It must happen. There's no stronger word. And any explanation or attempted explanation of the death of Christ upon the cross that doesn't explain this must must be rejected as being totally inadequate. Very well then, says someone, what does it mean? What is the explanation? Well, I therefore say that we look together at this word must. Why did Christ die upon the cross? He died upon the cross, I say, because he came into the world in order to go there. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen. But why did he do that? Why did he die upon the cross? I say he died upon the cross because it was absolutely essential. It was unavoidable. It had to happen. Why had it to happen? What is the meaning of this tremendous must? Why does he say here I, that this thing has got to take place? It must take place. Why this compulsion? Why this absolute necessity? I want to suggest to you that the way to answer that question, the key to the answer is to be found. in something that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember it? There is our Lord just before this death of his upon the cross. He went into that garden taking with him Peter and James and John. And he told them, now you wait there for a moment and pray for me. Pray that I may be strengthened. Pray that I may be helped. And he went forward a little bit further on his own. And there he knelt down and he began to pray. And he was praying in such an agony that he began to sweat drops of blood. What an agony. The agony of his soul was so great that literally there came out drops of blood from his holy forehead and fell to the ground. What's the meaning of the agony? What's the trouble? Ah, he was shrinking, says someone, from physical death. My dear friend, you mustn't say that. If you say that, you're making him smaller and less. 
than the martyrs, the great martyrs of the centuries. You're making him a smaller person than Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer and those, those other holy reformers whose martyrdom we've recently been commemorating. They didn't shrink like that. They didn't sweat drops of blood in an agony because they were afraid of physical death. You mustn't say that. It's insulting to him. Well, why is he in an agony? Why does he sweat drops of blood? Well, listen to what he says. Father, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. What is this? He prayed it three times. He adds, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by, this death. If it's possible, let it go. Is it possible? And the answer was that it was not possible. He's got to drink it and drain it to the very dregs. Why? What's the matter? What is this thing from which our Lord seemed to be shrinking? What is this thing that puts him into such an agony? Into such a terrible state of soul? There's only one answer you know to this. This death of his had to take place. And it had to take place as it did take place because, and I don't hesitate to say this, forgiveness was impossible without it. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. It must. I've got to go through this. Why? I say in the name of God that if that hadn't happened, there would be no forgiveness for any one of us. And we'd all be in our sins now and to all eternity. That's rather a strong statement, isn't it, says someone? It is a very strong statement, but it's a very scriptural statement. And it's the whole heart and meaning of the death of Christ upon the cross. Why do you say that, says someone? Well, let me tell you. Why had this to happen? Why must this take place? The answer is because God is God. Because of God's holy nature. Because God is absolutely just and righteous and holy as well as absolute love. We can't conceive of it. And that's why we put up our questions and put up our rival theories and try to turn it into a philosophy. Because we can't begin to understand God's holiness he is utter absolutely just and righteous nature. We can't. We are sinful. And we are always ready to excuse sin and to excuse ourselves. We can't picture what sin is to God. But he hates it with all the intensity of his eternal nature. God hates sin. And God has made it abundantly plain and clear that sin must be punished. He has said so. He told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of that fruit, dying you shall die. The wages of sin is death, not only physical, but separation from the life of God. Eternal perdition out of the presence of God. God says so, and he goes on saying it. He's a righteous God, he's a holy God. We don't like, as I said last Sunday night, the term the wrath of God because we think of wrath as something impulsive, something uncontrolled. The wrath of God isn't that. The wrath of God is just God's abhorrence and detestation of sin. If I may say it with reverence, God has no choice about hating sin. He can't help himself. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And darkness can't dwell in his presence. His whole nature revolts against it and must punish it. And he's told us that he is going to do so. Very well, I say, sin must be punished. And the punishment of sin is death. It's what our Lord calls here perishing. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. 
but have everlasting life. Yes, but if he doesn't believe, he perishes. And perishing, let us never forget, means this. It means this terrible state of being in sin outside the life of God. And it goes on to all eternity without end. Oh, don't ask me to explain that. Don't ask me if I understand it. I don't. I know nothing except what I read here. And it's the Son of God who says that man as he is in sin is perishing. He remains outside God's love and holiness and that glorious life of God. He perishes to all eternity. That's the punishment of sin. As those Israelites died physically, so men, because of sin, dies spiritually and remains dead spiritually. Very well, that is the position. Man's sin has brought that down upon him, this condemnation, this wrath of God. Ah, but the holy love of God has found a way of salvation. And here it is. This is it, you see. He sends his only son into the world. Man is under the wrath of God and he can do nothing. How can man be saved? Well, he must be saved somehow by a man. So God sends forth his own son, makes him of a woman. He takes on him human nature. He becomes a man, remaining still God, the son of man who came down from heaven, but who is still in heaven at the same time, as he's just been telling Nicodemus, here he is, the son of God, and yet son of man. He is the man who has come to redeem men, redeem mankind. He has come in the flesh. Here is a man. Now then, what's he going to do? This is what he's going to do. He is going to render a perfect satisfaction to God, whose holy laws have been flouted. He, he is made under the law, but he lives the law. He kept the law absolutely perfectly. He never sinned. He never did any wrong. The law of God cannot point a finger at him in any single respect. Ah, but that wasn't enough. The law has already pronounced judgment upon our sin and upon all our guilt. And if it falls, we are finished. We perish to all eternity. This is the meaning of the agony of Gethsemane. This is why he asked, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. He is simply asking this in other words. Is there no other way whereby I can save them? Save this terrible way of having their sins put upon me and thy wrath descending upon me. Is there no other way? And the answer was that there was no other way. He knew that as he made his soul an offering for sin, the wrath of God would come upon him, the God in whose bosom he had dwelt from all eternity. For a moment he would be separated from him, and he would see the wrath of God, and feel it, and bear its full penalty. Is it surprising that he was sweating drops of blood? Is it surprising that he asked if it would be possible to find some other way? But there wasn't. And here, you see, at the beginning, he sees it and he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God's justice must be satisfied. God's demands must be satisfied. Oh, I don't hesitate to say it. God's wrath must be appeased. But it is God himself who has profound the way whereby it can be done. And that is what is happening on the cross. He says, I must be lifted up. Because if I am not lifted up, you will not be forgiven. You will remain in your sins. There is no other way. You see, what happened on the cross was that God dealt with sin there. As the Apostle Paul puts it, he hath made him to be sin for us 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Indeed, you know, I see it in this very comparison that our Lord himself here uses. He compares himself, in a sense, to this brazen serpent. It's not stretching it. It's not spiritualizing illicitly to say this. There's something very suggestive about this brazen serpent. You see, those people were dying because they'd been bitten by serpents. So what he set up on a pole is a serpent. Yes, and a serpent made of brass. And brass in the Old Testament generally connotes judgment. So a brazen serpent is set up there upon the pole. And all who look at it are saved. Don't you see there? What we are told in the scriptures in the epistle to the Romans... In the 8th chapter, in verses 3 and 4, the apostle puts it like this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of the serpent, brazen serpent, man in sin, man with sin laid upon him and judged. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There. I see the meaning of this must. Our little hymn which we sang just now has put it well. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of him and let us in. None other, but he was good enough. And he paid the price of sin. If he hadn't, there'd be no forgiveness. He had to do it. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Is there anyone who still can't see it? Let me put it to you like this then. Do you really imagine for a second that God would ever have allowed this to happen to his only dearly beloved son? If there had been any other conceivable way. If words could do it, if miracles could do it, they would have been allowed to do it. No, no, God can't allow his own dear son to sweat drops of blood and to endure the shame and the agony and the suffering and the scorn of the cross. If it could in any way have been avoided, it couldn't be avoided. God must remain just as well as the justifier of the ungodly. God cannot play fast and loose with his own holiness. And God's way of forgiving sins is a holy way. And it's a just way. And it is a righteous way. He satisfies his own law. He satisfies his own nature. There is no one who can point a finger at him. That he's gone back on what he said. He made it clear in the law what he thought of sin. What he'd do about sin. And in Christ and him crucified he's done it. It's not surprising that the apostle determined not to know anything among them, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is the only way whereby God can forgive sins. We are all lost and undone apart from it. Even so must. The Son of Man be lifted up. He came from heaven to die upon that cross. That was the real reason of his coming. If he hadn't done that, there would be no hope for any man. Oh, my dear friend, as I leave you, shall I ask you the question? Had you realized that? Had you realized that you're perishing by nature? 
Do you know God? Man was meant to know God and did know God. If you don't know God, you're perishing. It's a proof of it. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're perishing. Do what you will. You can never save yourself. And perishing, remember, means this. Not only that in this life and in this world you don't know God, and you go on in failure and in misery, perishing means that you'll go on like that forever and forever. I can't imagine anything more terrible. But you know, you and I by nature are all of us like that. That is the central message of this. Shall not perish, says the heart of God's love in his own son. My friend, have you realized that you're perishing? It's what the Bible tells us about ourselves, every one of us. Our sinful nature means we are perishing and we'll go on perishing to all eternity unless we realize and believe and accept what the Son of God said himself here to Nicodemus of old, that he had come to bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And all you have to do, therefore, is this. If you realize that you're estranged from God and under his condemnation and wrath and that you're perishing, you have nothing to do but to look at Jesus Christ and to believe him as he speaks this word and say, I don't understand, but I believe him. These people of old of Israel, they didn't understand. They might have argued and said, how can looking at a brazen serpent heal a man from venom and from snake poisoning? Rubbish, nonsense. All right, if they said that, they'd die. But then they might say, very well, we're told to do it, we'll do it. If they looked, they were healed. And if you believe this evening that the Son of God has died for you and for your sins, I assure you in the name of God that your sins are forgiven, that you will not perish, but that you will have eternal life. There is life for a look at the crucified one. Have you looked at him in your loss and shame and helplessness? Just look at him. Look at him dying upon that tree on Calvary's hill and say, I believe he died there for me. Thank God for it and you are forgiven. Go to him and say this. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of man who came, Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and suffering rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew. This song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Have you started singing it? Get into practice at once. Look at him. Look away at him. Don't look at your sin any longer. I trust you've seen it and your perishing condition. 
look away to him and begin to say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Or if you prefer it, join in the singing of this last hymn, which puts it so perfectly, hymn number 765. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 765. fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him on his judgment throne. Amen.